we are going. Hello, everyone. Again, this is Ethan Shapiro, the climate change realtor with Coldwell Banker, founder and manager of the most innovative real estate sales company in the world, here for another episode of Changing the Climate. And I am very excited to have my guest, Mr. Max Boykoff. Max is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Environmental Studies Department, the director of the Center for Science and Technology Policy Research, a division of the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Studies, an author, and as far as I can tell, an absolute climate champion who can seek to inspire us all. So his studies focus mostly on the transformation of carbon-based economies and societies, as well as the cultural politics of science, climate change, and environmental issues. As you can tell, Max is up to a lot of stuff, and he is, um, was kind enough to join us today. So Max, thank you so much for being here, man. Ethan, thank you, and thank you for your patience as we found a time to connect here. I'm really pleased to be in conversation with you today. Um, just in that interim time, just to mention, I actually finished my stint as the director of the Center for Science and Technology Policy Research, and now I'm director of the Environmental Studies Program, but continuing on with these ongoing projects, so I'm happy to have a chat about all those things. Yeah, thanks so much. I apologize for that. I'll always love to get this uh, podcast started with a little background on who you are, That's and we'll get you to where you are today. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I've had a very circuitous path to to getting to do the things that I do now. Um, I could fill up the rest of your podcast today just talking about those different twists and turns. But Where are you um, from? Grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. Cool. In fact, I was just back there this past weekend uh, mm -hmm. visiting with my father. And not to put a timestamp on this too much, but there is a lot of COVID in this great state of Wisconsin right now. So it's, it's a very uh, difficult place these days. Jeez. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, how did you first become interested in environmental studies in general? Have you always been a nature, nature boy? Not necessarily. I think um, I would like to think of myself more as a nature boy. In theory, I'm camping and hiking and doing all these outdoor activities here in Boulder and the surroundings. But in practice, I probably don't get to do nearly as much as I want to. Um, and then growing up, you know, I did enjoy my time outside, but I wouldn't have considered myself, I think, accurately to be a, a nature boy. Um, growing up in Madison, it's a beautiful place. I um, really enjoyed being out and about around the lakes. It's a big area with lots of lakes. Didn't do, you know, too many things in the outer reaches of Wisconsin. Never have been to Green Bay, for instance. I feel like that's a, something I should have done at some point. Mm -hmm. But, but even, uh, you know, having said that, I think I have grown up just with an awareness generally, um, just like most everyday people of, of the importance of, of interactions, of the human environment interface. Gotcha. And was your undergrad done as Ohio State? Is that right? Yeah. I had a yeah. bachelor's of science and psychology there. A little bit different. Gotcha. What drew you to Boulder, Colorado? Well, this, this job, frankly, um, it seems. But it's a beautiful place. I, I was, you know, the first time I ever came through Boulder, I was, I think, 15 years old with a good friend of mine, Colin Ozan, and his dad, they had family out in Utah. And so they took me along on a summer road trip. And I'd never seen the mountains before. I was just blown away. And uh, just thought it's kind of 
was always in the back of my mind, boy, I'd love to get back to Boulder, Colorado. And um, so at that time, I was at the University of Oxford in a postdoc in a fixture and lectureship position. And this job came about. I just was excited to apply for it and was fortunate enough to be offered the job. Yeah. How do you reckon this, this community turned into such an environmental climate-based town? Because I, I run into climate scientists and obviously there's these big organizations here. I wonder if it has anything to do with the founders or, yeah, I don't, it's, it's just interesting how truly environment-focused Boulder is compared to basically every other city in the U.S. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's partly a function of just where we are, the physical mm-hmm. geography. I mean, we're faced with beauty all around us. It's pretty stunning. One of the sort of ironies is that right in Boulder, you're almost too close to be able to see the continental divide. You almost have to go east a little bit to then see the full expanse of the mountains, but we're right in it. And I think it reminds us all on a daily basis, just of, of uh, you know, the place where we are, or our uh, part of the planet and how we need to take care of it and take care of ourselves. But I also think it's partly history. Some of the history of boulders I've come to better understand it and appreciate it is one that's rich with leadership and commitment to, uh, to environmental issues. And that, that is, you know, at the municipal level, the city level with the green belt, the way in which the city of Boulder has very deliberately bought up land outside of the city in order to stop development that just kind of spreads between here and Denver. Um, And then it's also, you know, a function of a lot of commitments from people who have brought federal labs. I think we've got 38 different federal labs in the, in the state and in the area in particular, like the, um, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration with an outpost here with National Center for Atmospheric Research uh, in a couple of places, but one prominently just up into the mountains a little bit. And it has created a culture that has brought in people that are professionally oriented that do this work for a living. But then it's also brought in these other cultures of outdoor enthusiasts. And right. I think it's produced this kind of really productive blend. Um, of people who who do work on these issues. I think on a per capita basis, I've argued in the past and I'll stand by it that per capita, I think there are more climate researchers here in the the Boulder area than there is anywhere else in the country and arguably in the world. Right, so I'm happy as the climate change realtor to be here. So that's great. Would you mind, I'm sure you've done this dozens of times, just giving an, an overview of the problem of climate change itself, just so it's very clearly stated. Sure. Just in real general terms. I mean, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, boy, we've, um, we as a global society have benefited greatly from, uh, from carbon-based energy sources. And so this really was uh, established at scale back in the 1700s with the patenting of the steam engine that was attributed back to Britain and the UK and has proliferated out around the world ever since. And at that period of time, we um, harnessed the, the power of carbon-based energy to meet our livelihood needs, to prosper. And really it's been in the last uh, decades, maybe last 50, 60, 70 years, mm-hmm. where scientifically we've gotten a better understanding of what are some of the detrimental byproducts of that prosperity gained through carbon uh, energy. 
And so that is one of those off puts is, is climate change and human contributions to climate change has been a more pressing problem. I say scientifically because there was a point in time where this was modeled and forecasted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was a prominent meeting right here in Boulder, Colorado at NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research in 1965 about a changing climate. And as those decades have passed, as we get closer to the present, people are feeling it in the here and now. People are experiencing it. So science has started us off, but experiential, emotional, visceral, even the arts stepping in with aesthetic ways of knowing have really uh, enriched our understanding of climate change as an unfortunate byproduct of the way in which we have collectively um, industrialized over the last decades and hundreds of years. Right. Hmm. So it it really does come down to carbon powered energy. Now, this. I, so I'm not a scientist at all. I'll say that right up front, and and you are. <laughs> so as far as keeping up our our energy needs, what are what can we use besides carbon power? And carbon power is like coal, shale, natural gas. That that kind of stuff is carbon power. And the alternatives, like the sun is not made out of carbon, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, so the ways that we can think about this, first, I'll take a half step back and say, you know, I really focused in on uh, energy derived from fossil fuels. Uh, There is also land use and land cover change that is a big piece of the puzzle. Probably about, you know, it depends on where you are, where you live, but it's about a quarter of the the contributions to a changing climate, but our industry, our household use and our transportation is what makes up the other three quarters in general. Were you referring to deforestation as far as, as land use goes? Yep. Deforestation is a part of it. The way in which we choose to engage in our agricultural practices, whether we're doing engaging in no-till, whether we're uh, contributing to soil conservation practices or whether we're just stripping the land. It can be for cattle grazing, can be for certain uh, industrial crop, uh, growing crops. But yeah, so here in the state of Colorado, transportation is a big piece of it. Uh, But industry and uh, fossil fuel extraction, use of coal for energy, increasingly here in the the state over the last decade, uh, maybe a little bit more than that now, the uh, extraction of, of gas through hydraulic fracturing has been a big part of our uh, industry and society. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, this amounts to the ways in which an unprecedented, uh, in an unprecedented manner that we collectively have been changing our climate uh, more rapidly and more significantly than we have in, in any other point in history. Could that potentially be a good thing in, in some ways if we were do if we were putting something that promoted life into the, into the environment more so? I, I just don't know. Say that again. Could so, it be a good thing? So we've been basically taking carbon out of the earth. So underneath the earth or in the earth's crust or wherever it comes from and burning it, combusting it and turning it and putting it into the atmosphere, which then spreads it out throughout the, the, the biome, the stuff that lives on the earth and carbon is killing things is, is I'm just, I'm just trying to make sure I really understand what is going on. Yeah. No, these are, these are good, important, fundamental questions that, um, you know, part of, 
when I hear you ask that question, I think about time scale. That mm -hmm. yes, there have been these cycles, and there's certainly natural variation that has taken place through volcanic activity, for instance, through natural processes, uh, you know, changing solar radiation, changing forests, um, you know, lightning strikes that lead to forest fires and all the rest of it. But it's really the time scale of our extraction in that shorter term. If you think about since 1776 and really the birth of the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. that it's that shorter time scale of extraction that is really changing this equation, that it cannot cycle back on the time, same time scales as that we're extracting it. And so, yeah, I mean, there's some elements of, of carbon fertilization that can lead to um, plant growth and other activities, but generally it's, it's not so much um, the carbon itself because it's well mixed all over the planet, but it is that, as they say, the climate response. And so with that increased carbon, it's acting as a blanket in some ways mm -hmm. uh, that's actually warming the planet. So then it's that increasing temperature that, that has an effect on uh, human society, on the environment. It's also associated with thermal expansion in the ocean and sea level rise as well as storm surges that take place. It's, it's associated with warming of the poles, which is happening much more free, more rapidly than it is towards the equator. And that is leading to um, ocean ice melt and uh, smaller ocean ice extent as well as land-based ice melt. And so it's all those things together that, um, you know, you think about carbon itself is, is a building block of, of life, mm -hmm. but it is that that effect of these emissions into the atmosphere that's having on everything else. And so with that in mind, I guess just one other thing is that um, some people think of climate change as a single issue. And I think that's a big mistake that climate change is intersectional. You can right. trace the effects of climate change to just about every aspect of our lives and our livelihoods. And that then helps us better understand the enormity of the challenges at hand, as well as the, this, the many different entry points where we can address a changing climate through these, all these intersecting issues and challenges and, and, and in some cases opportunities. So, you know, the, the Democratic National Committee, if you remember back in the primaries, they were saying, we're not going to have a debate around climate change as a single issue. I think that whole premise is flawed because you could have a debate and a discussion very productively addressing climate change by talking about environmental stewardship, by talking about air and water quality, by talking about immigration patterns and migration. Uh, so that's sort of that more uh, wide lens view of a changing climate. Yeah, so, so it's not necessarily just how do we solve climate change, it's how do we maximize productive livelihood for not just humans, but the whole earth system itself. And, it's, and that's obviously very complex. Um, so the way that's I'm trying well to said. think, thank you. The, the way I'm trying to think about it is, let's say that there's a certain amount of carbon over the last 100,000 years or whatever, we see the carbon levels in the atmosphere average, you know, off a thousand metric tons over every 1000 years. And in the last 300, we've seen 10,000 metric tons, something, something like that. Right. So it's like ridiculously off the charts, way more than normal. And then some people will say, 
oh, well, these things just happen. It's just a coincidence. I, I don't, it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm having someone on the show tomorrow who is, I will describe as a climate skeptic. I'm going um, to listen to what she has to say and see how she sees things. But when, is, is that not accurate though? Like the yeah. normal system without human interaction, let's say was a thousand a year average. And now in ever over a thousand years for example and now over the last 300 years we've seen like 10 times what we've seen over the last thousand years no yeah well when we talk about planetary these these exchanges of they're basically exchanges of energy between spheres right so we're focused in on the exchange of energy into the atmosphere uh and so you know really not to get mired in in the um scale but we often talk about it in gigatons, which is, which is billion tons. So we're talking wow. about large exchanges of energy uh, into the atmosphere and cycling out. So you're absolutely right that before uh, humans really played a significant role in this, there was this set of natural variation, like I described before. There was this exchange that was taking place all the time. It's a dynamic uh, planet that we live on. However, in these recent decades and centuries, we've really more and more significantly been contributing to those changes through our practices, um, primarily by drawing on uh, carbon-based energy. And so that has contributed to what we're seeing in terms of, you know, concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Pre-industrial was 280 parts per million. Mm -hmm. Right now we're hovering around the high 417 to 420 parts per million. And we're seeing these increases of, of one, two parts per million per year, which is showing this consistent increase in carbon dioxide uh, concentrations in the atmosphere. And so further work, that's just saying that this is happening. Further work is showing that we can attribute this, these unprecedented increases, particularly in recent decades, to human activities. Definitely. So let, let me give you some background on, on me then. So, so as, as we, we discussed right before the podcast started, I went to see you, I studied entrepreneurship and I'm kind of think I have a good understanding of how to succeed and how business works. I think it's about having a plan, putting in the effort, executing and never giving up. So um, I started off kind of wanting to make a lot of money and be successful and go and travel around islands and stuff. But, and then, but I'm, I'm not ignorant. Of, of what's going on around the world. I pay attention to things. And this climate change issue has not been necessarily laying dormant in my head for a while, but it's been, I, I, you, it takes a while for someone to emotionally internalize something terrifying, like a mass extinction event. But I, I basically came to when I first got my real estate license and said, oh, I'll just donate 50% of my profits to fight climate change. And that'll be my impact. And as time has gone on and I've started doing this podcast, I'm learning more and more about climate change and I've understand how complex it is, but I want to, you, you set a, in business, you set a goal and it's not this simple, but you set a goal and you push towards it and you never stop until you reach it. So what I'm, I'm looking for is something that I can put all of my effort into that will stop this, this mass extinction event. And I'm looking for all the help and advice I can get from anyone of how to do that. My skill set is communication and entrepreneurship. I'm not a scientist. So I'm reaching out to all of you guys for help on what the answer is. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. When you first approached me and described to me what you were up to, I thought it was a great 
creative and effective way to uh, contribute and to be part of a conversation that can lead to enhanced engagement and action. And so right. that's why I was excited to come on your show, excited to have this conversation. Thank you. Um, because, you know, I will say a couple of things that one need not be a scientist. One can't just say, I'm not a scientist, therefore it's not my domain. Right. That, um, as I mentioned before, I mean, these are climate change is intersectional and these mm -hmm. are uh, challenges that we experience in all aspects of life. Say you're a realtor, for instance, you are a realtor and you're um, going to have to deal with uh, considering realty in the uh, hui, the wildland urban mm. interface, mm. and all the wildfires that are going on just right here outside our door. We have unhealthy levels of, of air pollution right now. We have people whose homes are at risk. And so selling houses in the hui is maybe uh, something that needs to be reevaluated. Building houses in the hui is, needs to be reevaluated. If you're a realtor that's, that's on the coast, and thinking about storm surge and sea level rise, you need to rethink the value of homes and where you're actually placing people. But that, you know, contributes to many larger sets of questions um, mm -hmm. around insurance, around incentives, around, uh, you know, people's preferences. But that is me kind of getting a little bit carried away saying that's not at all being a scientist, but it's being a a, uh, a mindful realtor. And so we can look to all different professions as entry points into being a part of these conversations that can lead people to the more significant action that's needed. Because frankly, the scale of uh, our response so far is nowhere near commensurate with the scale of the challenges that we're facing. Why do you think that is? It is if we, like when we had, like, it, it's, it's, it's like a, a, a phantom and not like the evil villain from the James Bond movie. It's not like Hitler, we got to go get Hitler and defeat him because then everyone gets together. It's like, let's go defeat the Soviets. Let's go defeat the Nazis. This is, let's go defeat ourselves. Like, well, it, it, do we need to like, I don't want to call it like trick people, but do we need to create something that unites everyone? Cause that's a whole other issue. It's just, it's, so large scale and it, it's, it's faceless, I think. And people can't, it's gotta be something to do with like emotion is getting people to emotionally understand. Cause once I fully understood what was going on, I'll never fully understand everything, but once you emotionally accept what's going on, some people can get paralysis, but someone like me, I just want to act. I just want to, I don't even care if it's too late. I'm just going to fight till the end, just knowing at least I tried, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of great, um, insight in what you just said. I mean, there's, there's so much to it. I, what I'll say to begin, though, is that we're in a very different place in 2020 than we were, say, in the year 2000. That's the year that I more formally started to really study these things. You mentioned my undergraduate degree at Ohio State. That was in the 90s. Um, but then I started a PhD in environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz in 2000, and really started to systematically examine uh, these these uh, challenges that we have before us. And, um, you know, I, I guess being in 2020 now, I think, uh, you know, when I'm working with students in the classroom, these are students that have been born into a world where this is already part of, of a conversation Definitely. that um, we can really look back to the late 1980s when this um, burst onto the scene as a, as a piece of public conversation. I could say a lot more about the factors that led into that. But if you were born 
after 1988, for instance, you've um, been born into a world where you're growing up, where these are conversations being had. More than that, if you were born after 1988, you were born into a world where you haven't ever experienced a lower than average temp, uh, sea surface temperature, if you average it globally around the world, in your lifetime. Uh, in a month that it's just been continuing to go up. So around us, we're experiencing that something is amiss. All that said, I mean, so I think there's encouragement about where we are now, but we are making progress, but it's not keeping pace with the scale again of, of the challenges that we're facing. And so, you know, I'm teaching right now as a grad seminar in climate politics and science policy. And we were pondering the question just a couple of days ago, you know, this is essentially a collective action problem. Are we showing ourselves to be worthy of, of stepping up to adequately address what's a collective action problem? I think the uh, jury is still out that um, for a variety of reasons, many people uh, don't have capacity to take this on as a, as a challenge, as, as a way in which they can um, actively uh, confront the changing climate as it relates to their everyday lives. Um, and so, you know, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, we still have, uh, many important conversations to, to face as we're going forward as pathways to engagement and action. I mean, you can think about like some people, you know, if you're going to be speaking with this person next week, one thing I'll say too, is that, uh, tomorrow actually tomorrow. And she's a friend. So it should be, it should be good. That's great. I don't think skeptic is the right word if, if you're describing somebody who takes up these contrarian positions because we're all trained to be skeptical. I mean, getting in any level of, of schooling, you know that you're, you're being trained to question, you're being trained mm -hmm. to critique. So we're all skeptics, but it's the contrarian positions that one may take up that is out of step or is outlier position from where we've gotten convergent evidence. And so, you know, contrarianism can take up many different forms. There's just like literal, you know, you put your hands over your ears. I'm not hearing any of it. Hopefully this person is not a literal contrarian or you're going to have a very difficult, it'll be a tough podcast if this person's not listening to you. It'll be then there's, <laughs> there's, there's interpretive contrarianism, right? There's, you know, there's this evidence that, that there's more parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but I interpret that differently than you do. Okay, let's have that conversation. And then there's this third form, which is where I think a lot of us live, is, is uh, interpretive contrarianism. That's to mm. say that when we take this on board, okay, we can agree that this is, uh, I'm sorry, I said interpretive, it's implicatory, that we can agree that we interpret these things the same, but by implication, we're saying, I have to change my life. I have to do things differently than I had done before. I don't really want to do that. And so some of that contrarianism can be derived from this implicatory uh, challenge that then gets put on us. We have to change the ways that we're doing realty, for instance. We have to change the ways in which we're getting to the grocery store and buying our groceries. Um, we have That's to change the way. for people. Right. And so once you start to unpack that, you can, you can find common ground by saying, you know what, the implications for me I don't want to face these too. You know, I am in um, denial at times anytime I get on an airplane and I know the contributions that that makes uh, to a changing climate. And I just told yeah. you, I just went back to Wisconsin this past weekend. 
And uh, these are the choices that we make and the contradictions that we live by. And so once we put that on the table and we start to say these are shared challenges that we face, I really do think that we can find bridges, we can find common ground to talk about the collective action challenge before us. It, it is all about talking, isn't it? Because that's when you connect with someone emotionally. And I don't think people make decisions until their emotions connect with their, with their thoughts. And I think it, it, it does take time. And time is not what we have. But I mean, I don't know. Do you have any idea where this, this 10-year figure comes from that we have 10 years and then we're, it's too late or is it too late today or do they just make numbers up to get people to do things? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a fan of those uh, countdown clocks. I'll tell you that. I, it, um, it works maybe sometimes. It can know. work for some people, but in 10 years, we're still going to be facing this set of challenges. They may be, uh, we may be at a very different place. It could be better, could be worse in some instances, and it really depends on where you sit in this world. I mean, those one of the cruel That's realities true. of changing climate is that those that are at the forefront of climate impacts are often those that have contributed very little to the issue to begin with. Mm-hmm. And that's just a cruel reality. And so, you know, you, you can say, all right, um, yeah, this countdown clock may be uh, relevant to somebody and it may not be relevant to others, but we're going to be, this is a generational challenge, you know, the truth be told that that emissions from the Model T Ford in 1911 are the ones that we're dealing with today. That CO2 emissions into the atmosphere stay in the atmosphere for anywhere from 50, well, some cycle out faster, but, but up to 200 years. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing today is going to be impact people decades and generations down the line. So these these deadlines can help us you know, can help us focus our minds on what we need to be doing today and urgently. But I don't like countdown clocks and I don't like these deadlines because people maybe start to take up this fatalist position that we're not going to meet the deadline. Therefore, let's just let it rip, you know? That's, that's interesting. But isn't it just like, really? Uh, I just, I don't know. It just, it just seems, yeah, 200 years down a lot. I, I do like the idea of like the infinite game and always trying to be better but like, I'm, I, yeah, we're feeling the effects, like you said, of the Model T right now. Like the, I can taste the carbon in my mouth when I go outside and there's smoke in the air and it's nasty and disgusting. And I don't want to be contributing to that for others, but it's, it's so complicated. And now I'm going off in, in circles. So I, I'm curious if you might want to talk about your, your book on the politics of climate change and how we can, because I am very um, curious about the distinction between the bottom up and the top down approach. And I think obviously we need both, but I guess it is where, where am I going to have my impact where I just want to have an impact on what's going to do the most work, but it's all connected. It's so confusing. So yeah, your, your book would be great to hear about. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the most recent book I wrote was about creative climate communications. I had that Um, as a second point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can talk about a variety of things. That one I wrote is a motivation to really highlight the entry points and highlight a lot of the research that's been done in the social sciences and humanities that can point to ways in which we can find spaces of empowerment to do, uh, do positive things, to make positive change where we can in our everyday lives. Doesn't have to be significant. Doesn't have to be headline grabbing. It doesn't have to be heroic, but it can be just slight modifications in the way in which we're all, um, meeting our livelihood needs that mm-hmm. can uh, start to steer this. I mean, you know, just backing up a little bit, you mentioned that you can't just point to 
uh, one villain, for instance. I mean, there are carbon-based industry culprits that are, are definitely emitting much more than everyday people. But at the end of the day, um, you know, this is, this is about 7.4 or 7.5 billion people on this planet. Um, we're all That's why you measure in gigatons. That's right. <laughs> and so, sense. you know, actually, the, in, from Madison, Wisconsin, there is the onion. They had done this uh, really funny piece a little, not too long ago that they said, you know, new research comes out that finds that there are 7 billion suspected contributors to climate change. You know? <laughs> and so that's what makes it a difficult challenge. Um, but it's one where, you know, this, this book is hopefully showing people from a variety of perspectives that there are many things that one can do um, in their everyday lives. This isn't just a scientific issue. If you're not a scientist, there's still plenty for you to do. I mean, we can look at the youth, youth climate strikes, for instance. Young Beautiful. people weren't waiting to, to get a badge of honor of a, you know, undergraduate degree or a PhD or what have you. They said, you know, as kids, we're concerned about these issues and we're going to go show our concern in this way. And it really generated a lot of interest, media interest, public interest, and um, also got a lot more kids uh, activated and involved. And so we can look to all these different avenues through which people share their experiences and share their perspectives and then promote um, conversations that can lead to action. I mean, one thing that I want to say here in the United States, so we have the benefit of um, a great group of researchers at Yale University and George Mason who work together. Uh, Tony Leiserwitz and Ed Maybach in particular lead those groups, but they've been tracking uh, how people report that they, how often they talk about climate change, for instance, how often they see it in the media. And one really pretty stunning figure uh, that they've pointed out as recently as just this fall in September last month, they had said that 64% of U.S. Americans rarely or never talk about climate change with their family or friends. So that mm -hmm. leaves 35% of people, uh, this representative polling, that talk about it occasionally or often. And so simply understanding that we all have a role to play and simply having those conversations with each other, like you and I are doing now, and hopefully if people are listening, they'll turn to a friend, a colleague, a neighbor, uh, a relative and say, just listen to what I just heard. And having mm -hmm. these conversations can then create an environment within which we can find more pathways for action. Yeah. Do, do you want to talk about inside the greenhouse at all? Was, was it your brainchild of you and Beth or was, who was, uh, how did it come about? Yeah, well, it's been a really fun project that we've had going for several I watched years your, now. I watched your comedy show. It is very fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Beth and I, along with Becca Safran, who's an ecology and evolutionary biology professor, we, the three of us had founded it eight, nine years ago, something like that, uh, here at the University of Colorado. And we were trying to create these conditions where students could be creative and be effective in, in uh, different ways of communicating about climate change and really helping them also grapple with their own experiences and help find their own voices um, in addressing it. And so, yeah, we founded this. It's grown where we have a fourth co-director now. It's very non-hierarchical where cool. Phaedra Pizzullo, who's a professor in communications, she, uh, Beth, Becca, and I have been working together across courses, 
uh, with undergraduates in the classroom, with graduate students that we've now been um, advising to, to um, bring climate change into conversations and into awareness, uh, into discussions in a variety of ways. You mentioned the comedy show. Beth and I in particular mm-hmm. have been working on that. That was really Beth's um, doing, I will say. That <laughs> she's got this, she's, she's, she's been awesome. studying the, uh, yeah, she's wonderful. Culture's a comedy, performance over time. And so we just started to talk about, well, what if we tried to get our own students to experiment in this space and we could study it and see what are the effects of, of those communications? And frankly, maybe Beth's already talked about this, but comedy has such great power to destabilize, to wiggle into, uh, point out nuisances, to point out falsehoods, incongruities, and then can expand and, and change our thinking that can be really productive. And so we got undergrads up on stage for several years. You may have watched our show that we did online. Zoom on, yeah. With a, yeah, with a good friend and, um, and partner from New York City, Chuck Nice who had uh, a number of um, contributions to that show, but we're trying to build out these other ways of having discussions that can overcome partisanship, polarization, and really climate silence. That once you enter into these difficult conversations, you might just think, oh gosh, I don't want to have this conversation with my uncle Charlie. He's just, right. he's just not going to uh, really listen to me, but comedy can open up those spaces in different ways. So inside the greenhouse has been part of an effort to, to create that more fertile ground for us all to engage in a variety of ways. Yeah. And the goal is to create communi- creative communications around climate change. And yes, Max, you're inspiring me. I appreciate you coming on. And I'm, I'm, as I am during these episodes, I'm, I'm thinking about things and trying to process my own ways of, of figuring it out. And this idea of communication seems to make so much sense. The, the statistic you throw out, it's very interesting that 65% of people don't really basically don't discuss it at all. Is that right? Or, or very seldom. They and say rarely or never. Yep. If you are communicating something to someone now, it takes time for ideas to sink in, but it, it's all, it all seems to be connected. This, this way of, of accomplishing things is just about humans speaking to one another and listening the same thing with with the by the partisanism or the bipartisanism and the hatred is if you just get in a room and you speak to someone and you communicate and you allow the other side to be heard they they probably won't feel badly about the opposition as if as if they're just a faceless thing on a computer so I'm out loud on the podcast trying to figure out what my my contribution to this 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 cause can be in the most maximal way possible. And what I'm seem to be good at is having conversations people don't want to have knocking on someone's door saying, Hey, here I am. Like, what do you think of me? And people are like, I don't like you. People are like, I love what you're doing, but I'm just willing, willing to do it. I suppose. I don't know if that, if this yeah. is, is like coherent, but it does seem to yeah. all connect to just talking to people and then getting as much conversation about the issues out because then the evidence is clear but then we have a debate still in this country i don't i don't know yeah well i mean you're walking the walk you're doing good work here just by fostering these conversations hopefully people are listening and it'll spin off into other conversations and it'll get people to rethink things in certain ways i mean this takes some discipline it's easy there's a time and place for everything of course there's well maybe nearly everything but you know there's there's this (laughs) tendency to 
name and shame and blame, but it just puts up people's defenses. And so it really takes discipline to listen to one another, to have these conversations, uh, especially if we disagree in certain areas, to work through those areas of disagreement. But it's about establishing common ground. So it, re it requires these disciplined commitments to respectful, open, considered dialogue about common concerns. That's the way to overcome political division. That's the way to uh, better understand how we're living in contradictions and how mm. we can work through them and how we need to work through them together. Yeah, um, I certainly agree. What, what do you think the role of, be it new businesses like startup companies like like my own or more established businesses have in in this crisis do they need to hear verbally from their customers hey you need to stop doing this or we won't be your customer what do you think uh, business as far as business because i see i see it as people governments and then i think the third outlier is is businesses and i'm, and I'm kind of trying to leaning towards that one because that's my background that's just where i come from you know yeah well, um, I do, there's a lot I could say, but I think businesses are, have the potential to be the most nimble. Um, mm. Governments are slow moving. I've I agree. studied a lot of that. Uh, people can be stubborn. People can be stuck in their ways, but businesses can really reshape these landscapes uh, in, in very significant ways very quickly. I think what you're up to, 50% uh, is a, a large chunk. You could have it's said gonna 5%. It's going to be more... Yeah, no, it's going it's to be more than that now as well. I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out what the, the best model for it is going to be. Right now, I'm leaning towards 50% of actual net commissions rather than just profits, just, just to throw that out there. Yeah, well, you know, I mentioned before that on average, about 25% of our emissions come through our household practices. Mm -hmm. And so as a realtor, you're, if you're taking these steps, you're making these connections, I mean, you can have conversations about solar power on, on people's roofs if, if they can, uh, you know, if they can put them up there. And actually, you know, solar power doesn't need to be for environmental reasons necessarily. It can be for economic reasons. You can actually save money by going solar these days. It's pretty Definitely. stunning. And, and so as a realtor, you can uh, very effectively shape people's behaviors and decisions. And that's 25% on average of this giant problem. So I think realtors have a huge role to play and even a more significant role than other professions. And so I really appreciate you connecting these things up. No worries. Um, I do concern. And now we've talked about like trying to get people to do things on this podcast, but I, I do try my best to avoid pushing my views on other people because they always just respond in a negative way. Even yep. if they, they come back years later and say, thank you, like they still respond in a negative way. So I'm trying to keep the business about business, but make the profits about what I believe in, if that makes sense. So I'm not, I'm actually not really at this point, cause I'm also not an expert on green homes, pushing that kind of stuff on people. I'm just trying to be like, Hey, this is the normal, this is Cobalt Banker, the, you know, one of the most established real estate brokers in the world. You know, we'll have, you'll have amazing service, you'll get everything done. But then on top of that, the money is, the money is what I'm trying to use to, to make impact. But yes, I, I do have interest in that down the line, but I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out how I can provide the most value to the world. And that's like an ongoing process. Yeah. I respect that. I, I think you're exactly right. And maybe your business will mature to a place where you're doing 
both. Um, right. You know, if you, if you see the book that I wrote, Creative Climate Communications, climate is in parentheses. And mm, that's to I say that, that you, yeah. don't always, you don't always want to, if you want to be effective here, lead with your chin and talk about climate change with any potential client that walks through your door. You can uh, just sell them a home. You can uh, say, hey, listen, I got this podcast too. And then you can funnel your funds to these organizations. That is part of uh, climate that may not be explicit, but that's implicit to your business practices. And, and that still is doing important work in this world. And maybe there'll come a point where you get enough of a reputation where you have people coming to work with you and want to um, come to your business because of the other work that you're doing. And maybe this merges together, but it's still doing uh, important and productive work. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I've got a lot of, a lot of big plans. I'll, I'll be sure to keep everyone and yourself updated on it. I, I really appreciate you coming on and discussing these things with me because I could really use all the guidance I could get. Um, any final thoughts as far as like young listeners who this is maybe their introduction to stuff like this and what would you recommend to go forward if they're, they're, they're interested, they're intrigued at the moment, you know, if, if two weeks go by, you know, you're back into the, into the, the rat race, right? So how would you recommend people um, move forward with, with stuff like this? Yeah, well, I mean, um, innovating like you're doing, being creative is, is the kind of productive work that we need to do. Um, and it's also a whole lot of fun when you it do is. it, that it can be, you know, instead of just kind of falling into the same routines, continue to do the same things that have contributed to these intersectional challenges, we can think creatively and we can be innovative and we can actually still uh, meet our livelihood needs and, and um, prosper by confronting climate change. And so, you know, I think nostalgia is way overrated and I'm really excited for younger people who may be listening about all of the possibilities that you have before you that um, to take advantage of that, to grab a hold of it. And, um, you know, there's going to be times when we all feel a little bit discouraged about things, but we need to be able to lean on each other and find community through these communications as well. So um, I appreciate you giving me some time on your podcast and I hope that the work that I'm doing will help contribute to uh, you and others making a difference in positive ways as as they relate to dimensions of climate change. And I I definitely agree with that. And you're very welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. And I totally agree with that. If you're listening now, if you're 18, if you're 22, if whatever, you're not stuck in any sort of path that's been laid out before you. Every day you wake up and you have a choice. And I think you should choose to do what makes you happy and what makes you feel fulfilled, whether it's whatever it may be. So um, thank you guys all for listening and watching today. It's been a real pleasure and this is Changing the Climate. I hope you all have a fantastic day. Take it easy.